I believe in the providence of God, even when the wrong scripture is read. No fault of Jim. That just happens when you got lots of different cooks in the kitchen. So maybe in God's providence, he wanted to remind us of what we looked at last week. So then we could see what we're supposed to hear this week. Two weeks ago, I explained the what question. What is the church? Last week with that text, I explained the why. To love God, love neighbor, love one another. This week, you should look in your notes, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. It's the how question. How does the church function? The text is worth reading publicly. Let me do so. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you memorize a verse, anybody, this would be the one, verse 9. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the pagans, the nations, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I've shared the story before. Maybe some of you have heard me say it. We just had a remarkable learning experience, my wife and I, when our first week in St. Andrews, Scotland, we got to experience what it was like to be sojourners, immigrants, and exiles. We got to taste that. We spoke the language, but not really. We had an accent, but the wrong kind. And I still remember that we came in, I think it was like on a Monday morning, and by Thursday, I still remember that moment in the grocery store when looking at English letters and words, we could not tell if this detergent had bleach or not. And my wife, just overwhelmed with all the cultural changes, just kind of teared up and was like, this is a big change. And then on Sunday morning, we walked about a mile and a quarter. We had no car for those three years, no TV, everywhere was walking. We walked about a mile and a quarter to church. It was kind of fascinating because like any secular culture, just like our own, only a certain percentage of people go to church. But what's interesting in a culture where everyone is walking, you're literally just walking along sidewalks with people, the family of God just leaving their homes and all walking to their embassies. It was so beautiful. And we walked into St. Andrew's Baptist Church at tail end of the summer of 2002, and we were overwhelmed sojourners. And here we are going to something new, and it just felt overwhelming. We wanted something familiar, and everything was new. Always new people, always new experiences. And we got there and met a few people and heard some further interesting accents. And St. Andrews is a university town, so there were people from all over the world there. It wasn't just the Scots. But as we opened up, and just in God's grace, just a a classic hymn that we knew so well that Sunday morning, I wept like a baby. Because when you sing, you don't quite hear the accents, do you? 
And for the first time, and at least that first week, I felt like I was somewhere I knew. And I was. I was in a local church. And they would do communion. Maybe they are today, just like us. They would sing songs, for sure. I don't think I was there in my three years where they didn't sing a few songs. Preaching from God's Word. I can only imagine if he's still around. Mike Ray is giving some pastoral prayer. How many times did I sit under his prayers and thank the Lord for his faithfulness? How many times did I get greeted by Ian? There were several of them, by the way. And somebody with the name McKellen, who'd call me a yank in jest while his wife elbowed him. But they were my brothers. They didn't agree with my politics. They certainly didn't even like the sports I watched. They thought football was soccer. But they loved Jesus. That's an embassy. That's the church. That's every local church. And we have to work hard to see that. And when you read 1 Peter 2, specifically in verse 9, you get a glimpse of that. I mean, if I was going to summarize the story of God's people, I wouldn't just start in Pentecost, the beginning of the New Testament. I would have to actually go back to the beginning of the Bible. It's all the way back there where God starts it all. Even in Genesis 12, a radical change happens where God does this amazing thing where simultaneously he gives a command to Abraham for this new people he's creating, but guess what? It comes with a promise. Who gives a command with a promise that he will do what is being commanded? Like if you're not careful in Genesis 12, you miss that. But here is God literally saying, He's commanding this kind of obedience, and he's promising he will fulfill it. Every kid would love mom and dad to say that when it comes to commanding a clean room. You clean your room, and I promise I'll be doing it for you. Kids would be like, yes. But that's how radical Genesis 12 is. I will, I will, I will three times. Like the emphasis of holy, holy, holy. I will. Who gives a command drenched in promises? Our God does. And ultimately, that command drenched in a promise goes to the book of Exodus, where these four categories that I underlined in your notes for you in verse 9 are stated. Exodus 19, 5, and 6. If you were to read Exodus 19, 5, and 6, you would actually think you're reading 1 Peter 2. Because what God promised in the old covenant was made known in the new, was fulfilled in the new. In verse 9 specifically, it is showing how the responsibilities God gave at the initial formation of his people in the old covenant have now been fulfilled by Christ and applied in the new covenant to the local church. So that in this one verse, we are given a description of the church's primary ministry tasks and responsibilities. You, by the way, that you is not individual, that's a plural. Y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. In fact, if I were to describe what this verse is doing, I would say it's giving you and me a job description. I have a thing that the, the, the guys will put up there in a second where you'll, 
you'll see that there is a job description that the Lord gives us. And I think here it is, 1 Peter 2.9, what's the job description of the church? It is this. This verse teaches us that there are four responsibilities of the local church. That is, this is how the church functions. Let's look at the first one together. The church functions as a ministry of presence. That's what I think that phrase chosen race means. I give you a definition in your notes. The church is called to inhabit the local community with gospel intentionality as a holy temple in the Lord. You know, the word race is an interesting one. It is loaded in our context, but I don't want you to just think about in our context. Race in general just refers to a people from a common lineage. And in Christ, we all have a new creation identity. Like, do you realize that? Like, you, you might be like me, a, a, a good mixture of Swede and German, but in reality, I and you as believers in Christ have a new identity rooted in the new creation. That my Swedish and German bloodline, which means there's a whole lot of stubborn in me, but my Swedish and, blur, and German bloodline is distinct from and separate from the bloodline of Christ in which I participate. Communion just reflected that. Here's what a guy named Tertullian was noting about the world, the Roman world early on in early Christianity. Listen to this quote. He's noticing that there are these Christians who are all over the place showing up. And listen to what he says. The outcry, Tertullian said, is that the state is filled with Christians. By state, he means the Roman Empire. That they are in the fields, in the citadels, soldiers, in the islands, both sexes, every age and condition, even high rank, are passing over to the profession of the Christian faith. The Roman Empire was complaining. They're everywhere. For the Romans, it was kind of like ants. They're in the kitchen. They're in the cupboard. They're in the basement. I'm not surprised they're in the garage. I found one in a bedroom, here crawling across my desk, across my computer monitor. They're everywhere. But notice what he, notice what he says that the Romans are saying. In every occupation... The fields, the citadels, the islands, both sexes, male and female, every age and every condition, even high rank, there was a new birth happening across the Roman Empire. Notice how Christians had a ministering presence in every part of that culture. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what the church is from governing officials in state capitals or parliamentary houses to prisons and working fields, local schools, every, every age, both sexes, even high rank. They're everywhere. It's a new race, a chosen race. Their bloodline is Jesus. 
This gives us a sense of seeing how the church should have a ministry of presence in the world today. But again, don't think world global. Think your world. Where do you live and shop? Where do you work? What parks do you visit? What stores do you walk the aisles in? What neighborhoods do you drive through? What sidewalks do you walk on? That's your Roman Empire. That's your Jerusalem. And how do you engage with it? Do you engage with it with, with the mindset of a ministry of presence? I gave you just in the bullet point some categories that we've given here before, and I think they're so important. The first three, I think, are completely and dead wrong, yet are common in how Christians engage the world. The purity from approach seeks to avoid the world, hence fortification. They feel that success is when you don't engage with the world. Praise be to God, Jesus didn't do it that way. No worries, Father, I never even visited planet Earth. The defense against approach seeks to defeat the world. That's why it's called domination. Praise be to God that Jesus decided to save it before he defeated it. The Revelance 2 approach seeks to join the world. They never even confront it. They never even deal with it. They think that the world gives the gospel. Oh, the world needs the gospel. That's why it's called the accommodation approach. What's faithful is what models Jesus. Faithful presence. It wants to connect, is willing to confront with the goal to convert. It wants all that. It, it, but it seeks to connect. The purity from fails to do that. The relevance to does that beautifully. But it also wants to convert. If you're not connecting, you, you, can't, you, you can't convert. You can't even confront. Faithful presence seeks to be in, but not of the world, sent to go and bear fruit. What's this look like? It, to be honest, it's, it, it's not a program it's more of a posture. It's a culture of the gospel that takes place in our corporate life as a church and maybe even just as significantly in, in your individual lives as missionaries. And that's right. Missionaries where? To your own neighborhood. To your own homeschool co-op or local public school or class at Rock Valley College or the office area where you spend 40 or more hours every week. Think of it in the old church word as your parish. Where is your parish? How am I ministering faithfully? When you go for walks, do you pray for your neighbors? Or do you get annoyed at their unkept lawn? When you drive to the store, do you pray? for a providential encounter with somebody? Do you think of all these people as individuals you are assigned to minister to? Good friend of mine, Eric Hesse, good German name for a kid graduated from Wheaton, pastored for several years just in southern Wisconsin and is now ministering in Berlin. And every waking moment he sees himself as a missionary. He learned a foreign language, and every encounter, every conversation, he's a missionary. Can you imagine if every Christian did that, even in their own backyard? 
That's what you're called to do. The second function, the church functions as ministering priests. Notice that second statement in verse 9, not just a chosen race, but a royal priesthood. Here's a definition. The church is called to serve as God's ambassadors in the community and spiritual ministers in the congregation under the high priesthood of Christ. To be a royal priesthood was always God's design. The hereditary bloodline in the Old Testament is now made possible through Christ. If he is the true high priest and we share in his bloodline, we share in his priesthood. All Christians, therefore, share in the priesthood ministry of Jesus. He's the high priest. We're just his under-priests, under-shepherds, by nature and by assignment. And I give you three different senses of priest. Look at the one on the bottom. The restricted sense is the office of pastor elder. Again, Protestants don't use the language of priest simply because we don't want to have any confusion of who the actual and only priest is. But it's a priestly duty in that it ministers on behalf of God to God's people. But, that, but that's a restricted and uncommon sense, meaning most people don't fit that role. Then there's the individual sense, which is the priesthood of all believers. That you should be ministering to one another. We believe that in a robust way by being congregational in government. We've got that youth pastor candidate coming on the 24th, and on the 31st, the priesthood of all believers will vote for him. I don't get to decide if he comes here. You do. But then there's a corporate sense of priests among the nations that our church is priestly. Yesterday, there was a family, just, just, just interesting connections, a, a, a young family in our church, the, the, the wife works at a place where a connection through her, a family in Rockford lost their home by fire. And people in our church body graciously gave of items to help give to this family. And, and my family was delivering a table and chairs and other things down on the far west side of Rockford to a family. And we get there, and there's just all these little kids doing somersaults in the grass. And I'm thinking, imagine if that was your kids, and they just lost their home. And they see my son Ben, and they are dancing and climbing all over him because it's like a big brother. And I'm, I'm so thankful that I just stopped in Beloit at his sister's house and Roscoe at his sister's house to grab dishes and chairs and tables that I could carry in so that these sweet little kids could have a place to eat supper because not long ago, their house was burned. It all started because a sister in this church saw a need through a connection and said, hey, let's see if we can help. Let's just be common grace givers of Jesus. Let's just be common grace. You got a chair you don't need? Because someone's got a, a tush that can fill it. You got an extra table in your basement that sat there for 15 years. There's a few kids that need a place to eat dinner. But notice it immediately went into local church and just through email, just through a prayer email. Anybody got something? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got something. But do you think of yourself as having a corporate sense of priesthood that this church has? Brothers and sisters, just so you know, that is reflected also in the way you serve this church. And you serve this church through volunteering and ministering, even as this morning, dozens of people serving and working. Many will leave the service to go care for our 
children, right? That corporate sense of ministry. We collect offering at the end of the service, which supports dozens of missionaries, denominational work, universities, the ministry of this church. Benevolence we'll take at the end goes to people just like that in need, vetted by your pastors and elders, but given to those who have real need. And that is out of your generosity, more than that. It is out of your worship to the Lord. Did you think of offering that way? Churches aren't supposed to talk about money with that. Really? God talks about it. The church is not a gathering of consumers. It's a weekly meeting and send-off for missionary priests. The third function The church functions as ministering pilgrims. There's that phrase, a holy nation. Here's the definition. The church oversees the congregation's allegiance to Christ and his kingdom as the international and eschatological people of God. The end time people of God. Holy nation is a nation set apart. That means set apart. It's not like the other nations. It doesn't have a king you vote in. It doesn't even have a a plot of land it claims it as its own. It's unique in all the world. It's part of God's kingdom, which is coming, but not yet. Look at verse 11 in our text. Beloved, I urge you as what? Citizens of your native country? No. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Why? Because there's no land yet for the kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom will claim all of creation. You won't need a passport to get from one part to the other. It all belongs to you. But not yet. The church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. Just like that experience I shared in Scotland. So I could remind you of a story I told you once of when we got my son Jacob's passport. And I walked into that embassy of the United States in the middle of Scotland, and there were no Scottish flags on that building. Even it was on Scottish soil, it was completely the property of the United States of America. And there was this weird at-homeness I felt, even though I'm talking to a guy from Houston, Texas, and New York debating which pizza is better, and I guarantee you I won that argument. But I felt like there was a bond, even though, to be honest, I've never even been to New York City. Here I was in Edinburgh, and talking to a guy from New York, I've never been to New York City. Still haven't. But that was an American. He's from this place. His president is my president. and That's the church. A disciple of Jesus needs to think carefully about their dual citizenship and appropriate allegiance. And brothers and sisters, if there's ever been a time, and there's been others, if there's ever been a time where that's important, it is now. If we do not make God's kingdom great again, our earthly country will take its place. If the church has a priestly role, and this is why I say this, if the church has a priestly role, it also has a prophetic role. And in this cultural moment, it is true. A sister in this church sends me these prayer emails. I call them prayer emails, where she's telling me something, but it's in the form of a prayer. I love them. I get them a couple times a year. Here's what she sent me this past week. 
in relation to our growth hour. This morning, my reading was Jeremiah 1 to 3, and I saw the American church laid out in all of its rebellion. Holy, awesome Father, forgive us. We are every bit as stiff-necked and rebellious as Israel. Show us what it looks like to be grateful for our country without nationalizing our faith. Oh, that's a hard distinction. Show us what it looks like, she says, to be grateful for our country. Amen. Absolutely. Common grace gift. Without nationalizing our faith. Why? Because we never forget that God says we're still sojourners. Last function. The church functions as a ministry of proclamation the end of, or that the, the, the middle part of verse 9, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's covenant language. If you read the Old Testament, that's covenant language. I define it as administer the institutional forms of God's covenant people for the work of the gospel. God's chosen institution that administers in word, indeed, his work in the world is the local church. To do Christianity and not to do church makes no sense whatsoever. It'd be like trying to do family but not be married or have any children. Look at the purpose at the end of verse 9. After all those four were stated, but this fourth one fits this so clearly, that purpose, so that you may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Just as the family is a common grace institution, so the church is a special grace institution. It's the means through which Christ does his ministry. Look at, look at those bullet points I give you. The, 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 the preaching and teaching of God's word. The, these are the three marks of the church, by the way. These are the three symptoms of what a church is. And if the first is the preaching and teaching of God's word, that's Christ's prophetic office at work, where week after week the Lord says, thus saith the Lord, do this, be that, believe this. The second is the administration of the ordinances, which we partook in today. That's the priestly office of Christ, where Christ, through his under-shepherd, says to you today, when you're bowing your head in silence, it is not you who is working. Christ has worked for you. And the third mark, the ministerial care and oversight of the church. That's shepherding. That's authority. That's discipline. That's the kingly office of Christ. Notice how all three marks of the church reflect the ministry of Jesus. Who pastors the church? Jesus. Who's the high priest? Jesus. It's a ministry of proclamation. So what's your job description? Your job description, church, is to minister to God's people and the world. Who do you report to? Who's your supervisor? Jesus of Nazareth. Call him Christ, the Lord. Working hours, I wish I could say you got weekends off or holiday pay. This is an all-of-life position. Who's qualified? Those sanctified in Christ and called to be saints together. And what are your responsibilities? 
Well, a ministry of presence, to be ministering priests, to be ministering pilgrims, and a ministry of proclamation. So we've talked about the what. We've hit on the why. Well, this is the how. And it's beautiful. It's the local church. And every Christian needs to know and help fulfill these duties in their local church's job description. And whether that's participating in the offering as you leave today or heading to your growth hour or being faithful presence as missionary priests in your community this week, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is your job. And it is a great honor. And you shall do it from new birth to last breath for the glory of the King, who, by the way, did all this for you first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel that we celebrate today and we reflect upon in word and help us to be your church, the local church here as Hope Evangelical Free Church in Roscoe, Illinois. Help us to do these ministering functions that you've assigned to us through your word. Father, I pray that maybe just by way of application that this church family would memorize. Maybe moms and dads and kids would memorize 1 Peter 2.9 and talk about it this week at supper or driving from school to practice. And that we as a church would reflect it not only in word but in deed. Father, as we close this morning, may our response be heartfelt and a reflection of the work of your word in our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.